You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. It's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Hello there. You know what's funny is that because I have a habit of doing that, like, hello there, is people have actually started responding with, ask fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi, and honestly, not even mad about it. So yeah, did you miss me? First of all, to the people from Google Podcasts, because apparently it hasn't been updating since July. And it's not just Google Podcasts, it's anything associated, affiliated, that goes through it. Loads of people hadn't been hearing me. I was like, why are my numbers getting like so much lower? That's why. Either that, or I'm just generally unappealing. Especially over time. Nah, I'm a fucking delight. So, yes, I, uh, I fixed that, as though we should be all good for all Google Podcast-related things. And then the last couple of weeks have just been a calamity of errors for me, really. Uh, I hurt my back, which was the first thing, and I just about managed to record this episode when I deleted it. Gone. Into the ether forever. Whew. Just, nah, bye. I couldn't, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't, like, find it. It was just gone. Like, I couldn't. There is a word for that to, like, reclaim the file. Couldn't do that nothing happened it was just gone forever so that was not fun for me and then again hurt my back I was actually off work uh, because I think the technical term for my back is fucked that's where we're at I've actually bent like the letter y except without the other sticky out bit so it's just kind of like a wee bend like that's my my back my legs I mean I mean, except for the fact my father has told me on no less than four occasions that I've got a long back and we stumpy legs. Thanks, Dad. But it's fine. So, <laughs> so that happened. And then, like, actually, on a serious note, 
the Krishla tragedy happened. And if you're not aware, that's when a petrol station in Krishla had a, a gas explosion, or they think it's a gas explosion, and it resulted in the loss of 10 lives. Which, it could have been so much worse. It could have been even more horrific. And the area surrounding it is damaged. And it's only this little village of like 400 people. But it's such a busy area because it's like one of the main routes from one side of the county to the other. And you would be hard pushed where I'm from to not know somebody from the area. Like, they're like six degrees of seven. Nope, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like that. But, like, even closer, like, three, four degrees. Like, I know somebody from there. And I know people who know people from there. And I don't know anybody from my area who doesn't know people from there. So, I had neighbours lose family members. And it's it's been like a dark cloud. Even though it's Donegal, so we always have dark clouds, but dark clouds over the county and I mean we do what we do best we come together and we try our best I'm getting emotional now who don't do this and we do our best to help I mean uh, I had like I think a tenner spare because your girl is broke so I donated what I could to the fund and it's not just for you know like funeral costs and healthcare costs of you know people but it's also to help rebuild the area to help get people like housed and and you know rebuild their lives those who could those who can those who have no choice but to you know and i haven't really made content since that really like there was a period where i just did not have the mental or emotional capacity because the thing about this is this is such it's such a tragic accident that it could really happen to anybody. You know, a kit, somebody buying a birthday cake, you're going for ice cream. Ah, sorry. I'm not gonna get into the details because I will probably cry. So there's that. And then after this, uh, my boy had like all of these, oh God, assessments and stuff. So we'd some in like where we live and then we'd some like in Belfast. So I had to travel all the way across to Belfast and he is not a good traveller. I mean, he's okay, but he really shouldn't sit on the back of a bus. But he wanted to go on the back of the bus. I warned him, but he ended up getting sick. And I'm like pulling my nightdress out of my bag because it's all I've got, right? And I'm like cleaning him up in my pyjamas. And he's like, I'm really sorry for getting in your fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay need to be sick just be sick in the pajamas don't worry about it i'll buy another like night shirt or some pjs when we get to belfast it's fine it's all good so that's what we do and everything that could go wrong did go wrong and then by the time we actually get out of the was it i can't remember if it was the asd or the add assessment but by the time we actually made it home it was like after nine o'clock at night it was it was it was a long day. It was a very, very long day. Um, but then today I decided, you know what? I'm, I have some energy. Let's get this recorded. Let's do this. So, you know, if you want to rate and review five stars, that would be super amazing because I'm really not well. <laughs> I'm still really fucking sore, by the way. Like, turns out 
forgot though by the way belfast is color coded so it's really easy to travel around like through the like the buses and the public transport system but it's all good it's all good but i know what you're thinking you're thinking quit your jibber jabber in fact me in fact you i will but first we've got to get our source on our sources are the burning of bridget cleary a true story by angela burke Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers by Sadie Doyle The Fairy Defence by David Willis McCullough The Burning of Bridget Cleary Psychiatric Aspects of a Tragic Tale by P.G. Doyle and H. O'Connell In the Cardland Nashanta, the Irish National Archives And The Cooper's Wife is Missing by Joan Hoff and Marianne Yates Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. Some of you may be aware of the line, Are you a witch? Are you a fairy? Or are you the wife of Michael Cleary? Apparently, this is a song sung by schoolchildren all over Tipperary. There's a long way to Tipperary. But uh, I lived on the Clare Tipperary border for a while and I never heard anybody sing this. But apparently, apparently they do. If you did, can you let me know because I just maybe I just didn't know that many school children. I mean that could be it. But anyway. And the rhyme itself all comes from a tale which actually garnered international headlines in the eighteen hundreds. And that is the burning of Bridget Cleary. A tale which was suggested to me by Mark from the Bearded Badger Storytelling Podcast. He loves his folklore, I love my history. And this was a story that I kind of always knew about. It was just one of those things. And it always bothered me because I'd heard bits and pieces of it. And a lot of the times when it's retold, it fails to mention that this entire event, everything that happens is just reeking of misogyny and patriarchal fucking bullshit. 98% of the time, it is portrayed from the perspective of the pale and stale males. Now, I may be pale, but I am not stale and I am not male. And let's get into the tragic demise of Bridget Cleary. Bridget was born Bridget Boland on the 19th of February, either 1867 or 1869. There's a discrepancy here somewhere because it's a woman from the past. Why the fuck would we have a definitive answer? And the reason there's this discrepancy, well, it's because at the time of her death, her dad said that she was 26 years old. But I think the census records sort of suggest that she was like two years older than that. But it could be a mistake on the records, or it could be a mistake by her dad. Whom's to say? What we do know is Bridget was born in the late 1860s in Ballyvadley and Tipperary to Patrick Boland and his wife, Bridget Keating. I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark here and suggest that Bridget was named after her mother. Agatha Christie's got nothing on me. Bridget's father, Patrick, would have been a farm labourer at the time. And his wife, well, she was a housewife. Because that's just how things were back then. It's the 1800s. 
and rural Ireland. And there was one report I read that said that Bridget was the youngest child of Patrick and Bridget Boland. But I could not find any other information on her siblings, if they existed. Nothing. Couldn't find it. Not a hope in hell. And I was digging through census records. Like, nah. Not a fucking thing. But anyway, I am going to go with, you know, I'm going to make a decision here based on the information I could find. And I am going to say that Bridget was born in 1867 because she was baptised in March of 1867. And you had my notes here somewhere. (laughs) Back in the day, baptisms and christenings, they were pretty sharpish. Because, you know, infant mortality rates and all that. So one month old-ish, she gets baptised. Yay. Good Jesus and stuff. And that's all we really know about her childhood, apart from the fact that she went to national school or like primary school, elementary school, you know, wee school, and Dragon. That's right, she attended the School of the Sisters of Mercy. Yay. Nuns. Nothing run by nuns is usually good, unless it's a bakery. A bakery run by nuns. Their angel cake, pretty good. You know, most other things run by nuns. Historically, bit of a hellish pit of despair. So her school was four miles away from home, which meant she had to get some kind of lift there, right? Like she'd have to jump in a cart or... I'm assuming a cart, and someone would, like, take her there. Because I know that in the 1920s, when my grandfather was going to school, my papa, he lived, like, a mile away from the school, and they would have to walk there and walk back. And they would go there with two swords of turf, or peat, depending on how you want to call it, under each arm. Now, turf, if you don't know, is, like, a like a log of dirt that comes from a bog that you burn for fuel. So each student, they would bring two sods of turf with them as they went to as they went to school so that they could, you know, heat the school. Like that's, you know, it's a free education as long as you brought some turf. I mean, that's a fair, it's a fair price to pay. And so, and I know how long it takes to walk a mile. So I have to think there had to be some kind of transport to and from school for Bridget. So after her schooling and whatnot, don't really know much about Bridget's life. Don't know what she did, where she went, none of that. We do know that at some point she becomes a dressmaker's apprentice, probably in Clonmel, because there's not really a lot of other places one could do that. And it's kind of a busier place. And it's round about here where she meets Michael Cleary. Michael Cleary is a cooper. What's a cooper? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'll tell you. A cooper is someone who makes casks or barrels. So, you know, the barrels that, you know, the whiskey's cured in? He would make those. It's the only thing I can think that barrels could be used for. Wine, I suppose. A wine cask. For the monks. There you go. For the monks, maybe. They do like making their old wine. 
So the 20-year-old Bridget meets 27-year-old Michael and they have a whirlwind courtship because they get married like a month to less than a month after that in August 1887 in Drangen. Probably because it was Bridget's parish, I guess. She probably came under that diocese. So yeah. Michael is originally from like another part of Tipperary, but he is working in Clonmel. And after they marry, he stays there to work. And Bridget, she ends up moving back in with her family. Like they get married, she moves back home fairly quickly afterwards. Now, this isn't exactly too unusual for the times. Like families would live together and husbands would often live apart from their wives because they would be working in one area and they would be sending money back. Like it was just, you'd go where the work was. Bridget, when she goes home, she's actually there looking after her mum because her mum's unwell. And this is where I'm going to have to give you a wee bit of backstory. Or the first bit of backstory, I should say. So at this time, Ireland was still under British rule. It had been colonised and ruled by Britain. And the land was owned generally by British landlords who were like members of the British gentry or they were owned by, how do I put this? Well-to-do Irish people who were seen as loyal subjects to the crown. But mainly it's the British gentry. So basically in one area, there would be like a bunch of poor people and one fell in a big house who owned it all. And he would generally have these labourers' cottages, which would be set up on the land. And also, in addition, furthermore, as a result of Angorta Moor, um, the Great Hunger, which you probably know better as the Famine, a bunch of laws, policies and groups sort of came into play. One of which was the Labourers' Act of 1883. So under this act, the Cashel Poor Law Guardians, they would build these farmer labourer cottages. So a lot of the labourers and the people who worked on farms, they would live in these like huts, these cabins, like tiny cottages. They were fucking teeny weeny. And these would get demolished and these bigger cottages would be built. So because himself, Patrick Boland, was a farm labourer, he was eligible for one of these labourers' cottages. So he gets it anyway. So Patrick Boland has this pretty sweet farmer's cottage. Like, it is pretty sweet. It's one of the best cottages in the village. And he is doing all right for himself anyway because the Bolands, they purchase a singer sewing machine for their daughter Bridget. So at some point in the early 1890s, Bridget's mother passes away. And the responsibility of looking after Patrick Boland, her father, is on her. So during the years that Michael is away working in Clonmel, Bridget sort of gains this independence. I mean, she was fairly independent anyway because she was already working, well, she was an apprentice dressmaker. You know, she was doing something for herself and she was in her, you know, she was 20. So Bridget, she's got her singer sewing machine. She's dressmaking. She's doing alterations. She's making clothes. And she also has chickens. She gets some chickens and she sells their eggs. So she's got two wee things going for herself, which makes her independently, 
not wealthy, but she isn't reliant on Michael for an income, for money to survive, because she's making her own money. So we're a little bit hazy on the dates, but at some point after Bridget's mother dying, Michael moves into the labourer's cottage with Bridget and her father. And he sets up his own coopering business in Ballyvadley. So, you know, they're both working. They're both in this pretty sweet fucking cottage. And all they got to do is look after her dad because he's, he's getting on a bit. He's, he's elderly. I think that's one of the reasons why they think that she is the youngest child of Patrick and Bridget Boland. Because Patrick is, you know, so elderly at this point. But if Bridget did have siblings, you know, they could have, they could have died in infancy. They could have migrated or immigrated. Anything's possible. But yeah, Michael and Bridget, they're staying in this pretty sweet pad. And they're very well known in the village. They're very well known about the place because they're doing pretty well for themselves. They're both making money and Bridget, well, she is, by all accounts, fucking gorgeous. She is a stunner. And on top of the fact that she is deemed to be incredibly beautiful as per the societal standards of that time, she was known to wear fashionable outfits of her own design. So she would have been wearing the newer styles. She would have been designing things. And so she would have looked a little bit out of place compared to like most people in the area. She was gorgeous and she was serving her looks. Abso-fucking-litly. You know, live your best life, Bridget Cleary. You make your own money, you buy your own clothes, but you make your own clothes. Do your thing. Fucking yes. So the couple were not exactly inconspicuous. And another thing that the sort of local community whispered about was the fact that Michael and Bridget they were married for eight years and didn't have any kids. Which, I mean, there could be a number of reasons for that. Maybe he had erectile dysfunction. Maybe she had vaginismus. For all we know, the chemicals from Coopering were messing with his ghoulies. Perhaps living apart for so long that when they did see each other, it wasn't when she was ovulating. Or maybe when he did visit, you know, sharing a, a cottage with your in-laws doesn't really inspire a romantic liaison, shall we say. Yeah, it's hard to get horny when your in-laws or parents are in the next room. I mean, I know the cottage walls are thick, but I don't think they're that thick. So, for whatever reason, they just didn't have any kids. No kids. Nada. Zilp. Zilch. Also, in addition, furthermore, they were friendly with one Mr. William Simpson, who was the caretaker of an evicted farm. Now, in general, if you were associating with someone who was, you know, who had taken the place of someone who had been evicted, or was caretaking the area of which people had been evicted, that was, that was not a cool thing to do. You would definitely get the side eye for that one. So, landlords, again, owned all the land, and farmers would rent out, you know, like, usually, like, a cottage and the land adjacent for farming. And you would pay the landlord for this privilege to rent the farm. But if you could not match those payments, or if he just wanted more, or if he just wanted to get rid of you because he could, because you didn't really 
have a, a backing there because you know the ruling class ruled you know so they could just evict you and if somebody had you know replaced you they were shitty if somebody was looking after it after you got evicted they were also shitty you know so yeah their friendship with William Simpson people weren't really into that no and as we know when you are different to like other people in your community it's very easy for the gossip mill to start churning and one of the rumours going about was Bridget Cleary was having an affair with William Simpson. I don't know, is selling your eggs a euphemism that I don't know about? There she was, Bridget Cleary out there, selling her eggs to William Simpson, if you know what I mean. No, I really do not. Not in the slightest. And when Bridget was out selling her eggs, she would often pass through or pass by this fairy fort or a ring fort which is like the stone circle, which was, I want to say, kind of owned by the fairies or the fae folk or the lishi, ishi, sorry. And they were not supposed to be disturbed. Like there's tales of, you know, someone cutting like brush away from the fort and then cutting their hand and dying or someone trying to take stones to build a dolmen and the dolmen never standing. You know, kind of, kind of cursed, but you know, it wouldn't really be called cursed. Like, that language specifically wouldn't be used, but it was like, you don't fuck with a fairy fort. Like, that's not something you do. But Bridget wasn't really, like, afraid of the fairy fort, and she would often, like, spend time there. Like, she would just hang out, like, after she was delivering her eggs and stuff. And, you know, she would have to pass through it, I think, on the day she fell ill, or that she was, like visibly ill the 4th of March she had walked through to uh, I think it was her father's cousins and so she passed through the fort on the way there and she came through the fort on the way back it wasn't exactly a quick jaunt either because it was like two or three miles she had to walk and it was bloody Baltic so it was very very cold snow had fallen the previous day and it hadn't you know dissipated or dissolved it was very much still there so it was freezing cold so she had gone all the way over there all the way back and when she got home she was cold she couldn't warm up she was shivering and she complained of having a quote raging pain in her head the next day she still isn't feeling better so her elderly father not her husband her elderly father walks four miles to get the doctor. Like, off he trots. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, the doctor isn't able to visit until the following Wednesday. Which is a week later. To the next day, but the following Wednesday. A wee bit of timeline perspective for you. Monday 4th of March, she comes back from delivering eggs. She's feeling ill. 5th of March, her dad, elderly dad, walks four miles to the doctors. The doctor isn't able to visit until Wednesday the 13th of March, 1895. And it actually takes Michael Cleary going twice to the doctor to try and summon him to come over. So he does go twice during the period between the 5th and the 13th. And then finally on the 13th, doctor arrives. And when the doctor comes, he takes a look at Bridget, he checks her up, and he prescribes some medicine for her because she has nervous excitement 
and slight bronchitis. That is the official uh, diagnosis from the doctor. Slight bronchitis. I mean, the woman is bedridden, but okay. But doctors aside, he does provide a prescription. But Michael, he's not worried about the illness per se, because he's convinced that Bridget has been replaced with a changeling. But why was Michael Cleary convinced that fairies had stolen his wife and replaced her with a changeling? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you. First of all, by passing through the ring fort or hanging out in it, or whatever she did, she had disturbed it, and therefore, you know, gained the ire of the fairies, who were known to kidnap children, babies, and of course, beautiful women. But Michael had said that the woman in the bed was, quote, too fine, so she was more beautiful and more fine-featured than his wife. Like, I mean, she probably lost weight in bed, so I don't know if that's a thing. That's not cool, mate. Nope. But also, he said that she was two inches taller. I don't know, mate, maybe you shrunk. Maybe she was just wearing higher shoes. What? What? Okay, so he's convinced she's two inches taller and that she's prettier than his wife. Or at least that's what he's telling the doctor. And her father, Patrick. And, well, every fucking person who'll listen to him. So, see, it's his pal, his buddy, his homeboy, his absolute bestie, Jack Dunn, who also happened to be Patrick Poland's cousin. So he was Bridget's second cousin. And he's telling Michael, you know, you better act quick or the fairies will have Bridget forever. So this Jack Dunn, he's illiterate. He can't read or write, which is not uncommon for, you know, the time. But he is well-versed in folklore and mythology and he's and he's sort of known to have the gift of divination, you know? And he he's kind of a driving force behind this, or at the very least he justifies this belief. And so when the priest visits after the doctor, he I mean he's not that worried he he administers last rites anyway because it's kind of expected of him but he doesn't think she's gonna die he doesn't think she looks you know deathbed ill bedridden ill sure but not deathbed ill so he does this anyway and after this jack dunn tells michael that you know you really should have called for the the fairy doctor and this is the eighth day of her being taken by the fae and replaced with a changeling and you should have called for the fairy doctor by the fifth day because you know Bridget if you don't act now like right now she's gonna be lost forever like gone so he goes to see Ganey who is the herbalist or the fairy doctor and he creates this sort of concoction which is like herb steeped in new milk you know new milk is the first milk um, that a cow produces after calving it's very nutrient rich it's very it's very good health wise it's actually very good very healthy very nutritious you know it's full of the good stuff so also the fae are said to like not be fond of milk it's i don't know it may be equivalent to poison i'm not too up on my folklore but 
and instead of giving his wife the medicine prescribed by the doctor, he wants to give her this new milk concoction instead. So news really starts to spread through like the village, the townland, and you know, a lot of people are convinced that there's a fairy changeling in the house and it's not Bridget Cleary. And like a bunch of men show up, right? So there are male cousins and, and other relatives and just sort of men folk appear. There are a couple of women, including I think Bridget's cousin and her daughter, who are witness to this whole thing. And these men are quite literally interrogating the bedridden Bridget. So she's on her sick bed and they are poking and prodding and asking all these questions of her. And when Michael does return back with his herby milk concoction from, from Grainy, this group of men physically restrain her. They pin her down as he forces the milk down her throat. And this whole event doesn't go unnoticed by, you know, the rest of the village. Because someone hears a male voice from inside the cottage shout, Take it, witch, or I'll kill you. This is presumed to be, like, Michael Cleary. But, yeah, he's shouting at that when he's, like, forcing the milk down her throat. He force-feeds her. And all of these men help. Because they all believe that this is an absolutely reasonable and sane thing to do. Pin a woman down and force her to drink herbie milk to banish the fairy changeling that kidnapped her when she was delivering eggs. This is what these grown-ass men decided to do instead of giving her the medicine prescribed by her doctor. But this weird-ass ritual isn't done yet. Oh no, because pinning her down and force-feeding her, not quite enough. So, in order to quote-unquote cure her, they threw their own piss on her. Like, they would just... I don't know, I don't know if they used a cup or a pot or whatever they, whatever they pissed in. And these men were just throwing urine on her. They were dousing an L woman with their own pee. Like, I, I understand that male urine is really good for keeping cats away. But apparently this was part of the necessary ritual to get the fairy changeling to fuck off. But whatever, it's just okay. So, after she was, you know, soaked with everybody's piss, they carried her to the fireplace and they held her above a low flame. So, fire's on, they are holding her body, her urine-soaked body, above a flame, and they are, like, all the while they are shouting at her, they're like screaming, um, away with you, come home Bridget Boland, in the name of God. And, um, are you Bridget Boland, wife of Michael Cleary, in the name of God? Because apparently, I don't know, the, the fae changelings cannot lie about their name or, or something, or whatever. And people like show up and they hear her screaming and they, they see all this kind of stuff happen, but they're too shit scared to, like, get involved or intervene or stop what's going on, you know? And 
And they they continue questioning her like while they're, you know, dousing her in pee and then holding her over the fucking fire. And it, it's supposed to drive the fairy like out. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And throughout this, Bridget is... Like, they say that she is wild and deranged, which, you know, I probably would be too if you were throwing your piss at me, you absolute gobshite. What the actual fuck is wrong with you? But anyway, after all this, they're like, yep, she's cured. The evil spirits need to be, like, properly vanquished, though. So they call the the local priest in. So midnight that night, they're like, she's cured. And the next morning... They get the priest to come in and say mass, perform a mass in the cottage, as priests are wont to do, in order to banish the evil spirits that were left in the house after, um, after, you know, the fucking weird ritual shit. Now, you think that would be the end of the story because, you know, that's weird enough in itself. However... On the Friday, Bridget gets up, she gets dressed. She's decked out in her usual fashionable attire, obviously. Her cousin said this was for her to get some kind of sense of normality, a sense of self, you know, to be more like Bridget again. But Michael Cleary is still, for some reason, even though she is deemed, proclaimed, cured, either of the illness or the fairies. He still thinks that is not my wife. And so I am a barefaced liar. I am an absolute barefaced liar. I said that fairies are repelled by milk. They're not. They crave milk. They crave milk. Ah, fucking shit in Christ. Right. So fairies crave milk. Yep, I, you know, sometimes you just fuck up and it's fine. So, um, I mean, it's hard enough to drink milk when you do have any kind of phlegmy, 
chesty thing because it just kind of gets stuck there. It's just not nice. But anyway. So a few of the relatives are around the house, including her cousin Joanna Burke. And Joanna has made Bridget a cup of tea. And in fairness, who doesn't have a wee cup of tea? I mean, you're really missing out if you just don't have a wee good cup of tea. But before Bridget is allowed to enjoy a lovely wee cup of tea, Michael demands that she eat three slices of bread with jam on it. So just jam and bread. Bread and jam? Jam and bread? Like, not like a sandwich, just like the bread with some jam slapped on top. Or maybe spread thinly. I don't know how well the man spreads his jam. So not only does she have to ingest three slices of jam and bread, but she also has to provide her identity to him thrice before she gets to enjoy a lovely wee cuppa. And like at this point, there were at least ten fully grown, full-ass adults in this cottage, right? And they're sitting there, he's trying to make her eat bread, and the cousins, I think, the people are chatting about fairies, because of course they fucking are, because some, at least some of them, are convinced that they got rid of a fairy changeling, right? An evil being. And while people are around having a wee chat, Bridget turns to her husband and says, Your mother used to go with the fairies, and that is why you think I'm going with them. Effectively, the woman who was reportedly exhausted because, you know, she's she's probably still not over the sickness, right? She's being badgered by her husband and exasperated, she turns to him and goes, The only person who's away with the fairies is your mother. Like... That's what she's saying. If, if this is a colloquialism that you don't get if it's not in your country, it basically means that someone who's away with the fairies isn't really in the same realm of reality as the rest of sort of mankind. You know, they're not really involved. They're not really there. You know, they're maybe a little bit, I want to say, I hate to re-reference this, but a little bit like Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter. Kind of wistfully, kind of away. Just their mind is somewhere else. That kind of thing. In fairness, Luna probably was away with fairies. That feels like something that Luna would do on a holiday. Like, off we go to the Pixie Valley. But yeah, she <laughs> she basically told him that his, his mum was dodgy as fuck. I do love the fact that after everything that Bridget, the ordeal that she's gone through over the past few days, she said, fuck that for a game of soldiers. Your mother was away with the fairies. Fuck you, effectively, right? I I greatly appreciate that. Like, absolutely, 100%. So he's getting madder and madder and he's like, what's your name? Eat the bread. Eat the bread, wench. Right? And... She eats two slices of bread and she says her name like twice. She responds to his questioning twice. But, you know, she doesn't want to eat this third slice of fucking bread. Maybe she's full. Maybe she's still not feeling great because, you know, you held her over an open fire and you threw your piss on her. You know what I mean? Doesn't really, you know, invoke great, I don't know, energy. But yeah, that's the situation. And he gets 
really fucking mad. Like, he goes ballistic, right? So, when she doesn't answer this, like, third time, she doesn't eat this last bit of bread, he physically forces the bread into her mouth, right? And before I go any further, I'm gonna throw in a trigger warning here. Um, that was a that was my impression of a siren. Um, for warning, you're welcome. By the way, it's very. You're, I know you're impressed. So, uh, yeah, there's gonna be a description of abuse and assault here, really, and and murder. Just letting you know, you might want to skip about 30, 35 seconds. Maybe a minute. Let's go for a minute. So he, Michael, is fucking ballistic at this point. To call him mad would be an understatement. He is livid to the point of derangement. So Michael Cleary has forced a slice of bread and jam into his wife's mouth. And he fucking straight up yells at her if you won't take it down you will go and then just as he said he throws her onto the fucking ground climbs on top of her presses his knee against her chest and grips his hand around her throat he is screaming at her to swallow the bread to swallow it down and you know when she doesn't respond Because, surprise, surprise, sometimes it's pretty difficult to actually speak when someone is physically choking you. And being ever rational and reasonable, Michael Cleary grabs a fucking hot stick or a poker from the fire and holds it over her mouth. So he's got one hand round her throat and a hot, burning ember above her lips. Like, what? And remember as well, this entire room is filled with people. At least eight other people are in this room. At least eight of them. And none of them think maybe I should, you know, stop this man from burning his wife's face while he chokes her. So while they do absolutely nothing, Michael Cleary rips his wife's clothes from her body down to her chemise. He used this stick from a fire to light her chemise and then he poured the oil from the lamp onto her. He was just dousing it with her because apparently she wasn't burning fast enough for him. He grabs an oil lamp and pours the oil from it onto his wife who is still pinned to the ground. He sets her on fire. On fire! And while she is screaming and burning alive. Nobody does a fucking thing. Nobody tries to put it out. Nobody tries to stop him. Nothing. And all the while, Michael is just ranting and raving about how, you know, it's a witch that's replaced his wife and he isn't going to be, you know, living in a house with a witch and she's going to go up with the smoke in the chimney and Bridget will return on a white horse and it's not Bridget he's burning. It's not Bridget he's burning because it's just this malevolent fairy changeling. And by the time he's stopped talking, Bridget is dead. And at this point, the house is full of smoke. 
and the stench of a burning corpse fills the air. Like fat and oil and charred skin, burnt hair. This stench from Bridget Cleary's charred remains lying on the hearth. And now this cottage full of grown-ass men, and at least one woman, have to decide what the actual fuck are they going to do with Bridget and or the malevolent fairy changeling's smouldering corpse. But of course, the only logical thing for them to do, apparently, is to remove Bridget's dead body from the house and bury it in a shallow grave. And this is where things get a wee bit muddy because Michael decides to lock, you know, Bridget's extended family inside the cottage, at which point he convinces her cousin Patrick to help him dispose of her remains. And in the days following this, Michael and a bunch of other people, a couple of other people, some other people, I don't know an exact amount, they are holding a vigil at the ring fort, the fairy ring fort in Kelnagrana. Because Michael is waiting for his wife Bridget to arrive on a white horse to just trot, gallop. What's that thing they do when they can dance during the dressage? They do a thing. It's really cute. I'm doing a little movement with my fingers as if you can see it, but they do this wee like skippy thing. It's really cute. Horses do it. Anyway, it's in the Olympics. So yes, Michael Cleary is waiting for his wife Bridget to come forth on a white horse. And while he's doing that, rumours start, whispers, you know, they're floating through. They're floating through the town. Because some people who had been in attendance that evening felt the need to say that they had seen Bridget walk across the fields in her nightdress with two men. Now, Bridget may have crossed the fields in her nightdress with two men, but she certainly was not walking. But you know, this story goes out, 14th of March, off she was, trotting away with two fellas. Oof, of course she was. You know what she's like, the hussy, hanging out with the man, slinging her eggs. You know how it is. But nobody sees her for quite a while. And this gets the attention of the RIC, which are the Royal Irish Constabulary, who were the, you know, the current police force in Ireland at that time. And they were, like, ruled by the British. That's why they're royal. So, you know, they get wind of this mysterious woman's disappearance that could, you know, involve foul play because two men were involved, at least luring her across the fields and whatnot. And this gets the attention of the district inspector, Alfred Joseph Warnsborough, and so he orders an extensive search of the area. And on the 22nd of March, they discover, you know, this shallow grave where she was, you know, basically dumped. Like, it, it was very, I mean, it was found so quickly, really. And that was when they started rounding up people. And I think it's like 10 people who got arrested, all in all. Michael Cleary, Patrick Boland, uh four of Joanna's brothers, I think 
Joanna herself, Joanna's mother, and two other people, I guess. There was there was a good a good chunk of them. So they all get arrested. And when this hits the news, it is explosive. It is everywhere. Like there are papers printing this story in London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Manchester, France. It was even hit in Canada and the USA and Mexico. They printed this story in papers in Mexico. Like that's how far this travelled. And one of the reasons why it did go so far is because, you know, the Tory press, this was perfect. This is exactly the kind of thing they needed to help to really promote themselves as like the superior people, you know? Like, why should Ireland have home rule if this is how, you know, the Irish act? You know, they believe in these silly superstitions. The thing about Irish folklore, though, is it's very much like improv comedy. Yes, and. Yes, and. That's why you get so much, like, Christianity, like, at the end of Irish folklore stories. It's because, yes, and. Because that was how they wove it in. Because all of the... The myths and legends and the tales, they were very much an oral or an oral like situation. You just told it to one another. Bards and poets would travel round and people would tell stories. It was just an oral history. Like, that's why we know nothing about druids, really, because those fuckers never wrote shit down. Not a jot. So, yeah, yeah. But Irish folklore and myths and legends, they, they were held in belief when they were held in belief. They were held in belief alongside Christianity. So it was a very clever way it was done because it meant that you weren't pushing away all the beliefs of a people. You were integrating your like belief system with theirs. And then slowly but surely you took over because it's, it's sneaky, but it fucking worked. Anywho, this really worked like fucking amazing for the Tories. Because they were able to turn around and go, ah, look at the idiot Irish believing in, ooh, like maths. Which, you know what's really funny actually? You know when they say what's like classy if you're, if you're rich but trashy if you're poor? And it's belief in the supernatural like at this point in time. Because this is sort of the era where people are like, believing in ghosts and they're doing seances and you know all that kind of thing like that's very very big and it's very big with the higher classes in in England but of course believing in something supernatural in Ireland is obviously woo it's obviously fake and silly like you know what I mean it's just it's very classist in it so yeah this just gets pounded through the papers because it really, it suits, it suits, you know, the crown for, you know, for Michael to truly believe that his wife was replaced by a evil fairy changeling and because of this ignorant belief, a man burnt his wife alive, murdered her because he believed in fairies. The Tories got to go on about how barbaric, you know, they were over in rural Ireland and how the wild Irish still needed to be controlled and guided by the crown and couldn't possibly rule themselves. 
you know, it was a way of just pushing home rule to the side. So nine people are arrested initially. One person, you know, gets discharged and then another person is arrested. So 10 are arrested in total, but they get rid of one, right? So legally stuff is happening pretty sharpish. So between like the 1st and 6th of April, like the legal hearings are going about, which is why one person gets dropped and another person gets lumped in. But it's not until the 3rd of July that the court is in session. And there is so much going on with this case. They have photographs, they have testimony, they have the actual corpse of Bridget Cleary. So five people are indicted for the murder of Bridget. And this is Michael Cleary, her dad Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy, James Kennedy and Patrick Kennedy. But like all nine involved were indicted on charges of wounding, right? And this was because of like all the ritual stuff they did to her like before death. Some might even go as far as to call it torture. Because it absolutely bloody was. Anywho. Right, so we know that witness statements are, you know, unreliable. But, you know, you put all them together, you're going to find the truth in there somewhere. And there's all these, like, conflicting testimonies and, you know, bits were overlapping and some bits aren't adding up and making sense. But it's Joanna Bark's testimony, the cousin, and that of her 10-year-old daughter, Katie, which is seen as the most true of the events. Like, what she says, nearly everybody agrees with. Like, even other people who are, you know, witnesses or, well, are, you know, defendants, really. It's like, they're, most of them are agreeing with, you know, her perception of events. And on top of this, and, you know, the crime scene photographs and photos of the area and probably the charred mark on the ground where her body once lay. The jury were also led into a storage building where Bridget's body was being held for burial. So they were able to look upon her body and see, you know, the injuries that she sustained. They were able to see, you know, all the shit she went through. And, you know, be really, really aware of how much this woman fucking suffered. Like, they could see she had been tortured. You know? And this basically set stuff in stone for, you know, all of the defendants. So, like, you've got all these people who are indicted, but not everybody is charged with, you know, like, hard labour. It's, it's just the men, really. So you've got Patrick Kennedy, basically the Kennedy brothers. So you've got Patrick Kennedy, who gets five years of hard labour. Michael Kennedy gets six months. James Kennedy, 18 months. William Kennedy, 18 months. Patrick Boland gets six months. Because he's an old man, they're like, a bit much. And John Dunn gets three years. So John Dunn gets more because, you know, he influenced this. Patrick Kennedy, you know, helped dispose of the body. And it was effectively how much you were involved in, you know, this whole torture and murder situation. That how much you got. So Mary Kennedy is somehow involved, but we don't really know that much about it. That would be, I think, Joanna's mum or... 
I think it's Joanna's mum. Or it's the... No, it has to be because she's old, right? Yeah. So because she is frail... Because, uh, yeah, it's because of age and frailty is the reason given that why she doesn't get any hard labour. So she should have been, you know, charged and given it, sentenced hard labour. The sentenced hard labour to hard labour. Jesus Christ, I can't speak today. And that should have been the case. That should have been it. Should have been done. But, again, old and weak. And she's a lady, old lady. Can't be doing that. And then we get to Michael Cleary. So Michael Cleary, he's really fucking lucky because the charges get moved from murder down to manslaughter because, you know, murder is like a premeditated or an intentional killing and it's manslaughter because he didn't believe that he was killing his wife. He was killing a fucking fairy changeling. So Michael, he is sentenced to 20 years of hard labour. So this is like penal servitude. You're in prison and you're, I don't know, manual labour and shit. Lots of hard stuff. Very hard on the body. Very, you know, psychologically detrimental, really. And luckier still, even though he's sentenced to 20 years, he gets out in 15. And then... He buckers off to Liverpool for a bit before emigrating to Montreal. So, you know, there could very well be people in Canada that are descendants of Michael Cleary. Because he got out of prison and he was able to start a new life. Was it good? Was it bad? We don't know. But he got the opportunity to do that. Bridget did not. Because of him. And a bunch of men. Like, at the end of the day, it was mainly men who were involved in this. And so some people think that the reason this happened was, you know, some form of brief psychosis. And that he was convinced, you know, that his wife was possessed or had been replaced. And, you know, he had to do this. He was seeing things, you know. You know, there's also the thought that maybe he genuinely believed in this stuff. I do not subscribe to either of those theories. I know you're surprised. Yeah. I am convinced that Michael was mad that Bridget had made a life for herself. That she had decided being married to him wasn't the be-all and end-all of her existence. She was independent. She was self-sufficient. She had, you know, financial security and she wasn't reliant on him. She dressed well. She was beautiful. And you know what I'm going to say? She was out of his league. She was too good for him. And he detested, nay, despised the fact that she dared to be independent. He wanted to be, you know, as men of the era were, he wanted to be the man of the house. But she didn't need him to survive. And I think that pissed him off. I think the fact that she was, you know, a modern woman and was, you know, making her own way in the world. And he just, his fragile masculinity just couldn't handle that shit. And so he used this as an excuse. It's why he didn't give her medicine. It's why he was not the first person to go to the doctor. 
And I think when the doctor hadn't arrived over the next couple of days, the other people had come forward and probably gone, you know, why haven't you, you know, gone to the doctor, you know, to get your, you know, sorry, your wife. And I think that's where that came from. I think that's why he then went to make it seem as though he was, you know, a great husband. When in fact, he was just hoping she would die. And then when she got better, you know, when she recovered from this illness, he was so pissed off. And the fact that she had insulted him in this house full of people, in front of, you know, the very men who had helped him pin her down and force milk down her throat. He was weak, he was shitty, and he emasculated himself. That's what he did in his mind, to the point where he had to assert his dominance the only way he knew how, which, for some reason, is fucking murder. And then he got to go off and live his own life. I don't care what shit he went through in prison, because he killed his wife. He set her on fire after choking her. Like, no, not even a little bit. Don't even feel sorry for him. Meanwhile, Bridget Cleary was buried in Clonine Cemetery by RIC, by police officers, because most of her family were in prison and as such were unable to attend. And like, because he had, one, referred to her as a witch on at least two occasions, and B, he had, you know, burned her alive that is where the concept of Bridget being like a witch comes from even though she didn't do any of the regular witchy stuff like you know go hurt with the devil or you know curse all the arseholes in town but anyway so ends our story of Bridget Cleary the last witch burned in Ireland so what did we learn today fuck Apparently men are willing to kill their wives because she won't eat a piece of toast. And that the Tories have happily used tragedies to push forward their own agenda since the 1800s. And so, that is the end of the tale. If you like today's story, please, 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 please rate and review 5 stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You know, you know it doesn't matter what you say in the review, you could like, literally say anything. You could tell me your favourite type of witch. You know, and you could tell me if you could make a potion, what kind of potion it would it be? You could literally tell me your favourite sandwich. Or you could say mean things about me. I, it doesn't matter. I mean, I do love compliments, I'm not going to lie. But, you know, anytime you write something in the review, it helps boost it. So, five stars. If you put anything less than five stars, it, it really demotes it. But it would be super, super helpful if you would just rate and review I said all that very fast. I'm very sorry. I've got a very sore nose and I'm quite tired now. But yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I think. Lots of other places. Uh, TikTok. I'm on TikTok. I'm on there quite... I haven't actually posted much recently. But yes, yes. I actually have to show you my crowns. I got these fucking gorgeous crowns from uh, from Sweet V. Uh, you can go onto the website and use code KT10. K-A-T-I-E 
10, 1, 0. And get a 10% discount on crowns. You may as well use it. Somebody better. <laughs> I'm all for discounts. Use discounts. Woo. We're in a cost of living crisis. Anytime you can save money is fantastic. I also want to dedicate this podcast to my friend, the Bearded Badger, from Bearded Badger Storytelling, who, review time, not review time, no, those words are wrong, recommendation time, it's been a long day, I'm so sorry, recommendation time, for listening, we have Bearded Badger Storytelling, listen to that podcast, it's brilliant, right, proper folklore, it's it's good. It's really good. Also, told by a man with a big bushy beard like a wizard. How can you not love that? For watching, I'm actually going to recommend Evil Dead, the original version. It's one of my favourite horror movies. If you, you know, but if you're not into like horror or, you know, the undead, you could watch Hocus Pocus 2. Why not? I'll give you two recommendations. One spooky, one Halloween themed but not spooky. And for reading, I am going to suggest my friend Susie Edge's book, Mortal Monarchs. So if you haven't read it, it's so good. I like pre-ordered it. Uh, it's If you want to know about gore and, you know, horrible ways that monarchs died, it's really, it's really your cup of tea. You know what I mean? It's so good. So good. But with that, I shall bid you farewell. It's been, I need to sleep, honestly. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.